0: Great week that we had uh, on serve. I feel like that my sermon text this morning should be He gives His beloved sleep. I think probably my number one goal is going to be to keep you awake after such an active week serving in the community and uh, everyone laboring so hard and and then the rain to accompany the sermon. (laughs) All right, so Uh, Pastor Ken is here. I am not him, uh, so don't hold what's about to be inflicted upon you against him. Uh, he is uh, doing, as the elder said last uh, summer, we set out uh, for him. I was on the elder team at the time, so I said we. But um, we wanted him to take a preaching sabbatical each summer, just to take time, still here, still working, still active in ministry, but just to take time to refresh, recharge, and to think about uh, uh, preaching plans for the upcoming year. So that started last week. Uh, Jonathan preached the first part of the passage, and I'm about to uh, try to finish today. And so uh, the next few weeks, you'll we'll have various people preaching uh, from here within the church. And so it's a privilege to share God's Word with you this morning. With that said, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 28 through 38 together. Acts chapter 20, and we're going to look at verses 28 through 38 together. As Jonathan began last week, uh, here in Acts 20, we see Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders. So he set the stage for me, and uh, I get to preach Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders, part two. Uh, so I didn't even have to come up with the sermon title. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Your sermon titles are as original as mine. And uh, so uh, that's exactly what I would have done. We're right on the same page. So I, I appreciate that. As Jonathan started last week, he, he told us this is a, a an emotional thing, right? This is an emotional thing. This is an emotional farewell Address: I can't read this passage without thinking of these words. And I quote, "Well, here, at last, dear friends, on the shores of the sea, to comes comes the end of our fellowship on middle Earth. Go in peace. I will not say, do not weep, for not all tears are an evil. Now, you know what that's from, if you know, right? Middle-earth was a giveaway. If you don't know, then you don't know, and that's okay. These are the words of Tolkien in The Return of the King. that was made into three movies, six movies, 38 movies, I don't know. All kinds of things. Now, uh, there uh, at the end of The Return of the King, of that emotional farewell with the end of the fellowship, as it said, there on Middle-earth at the shores of the sea with much tears. And as Tolkien said, I will not say, do not weep for not all tears are evil. And that is certainly the spirit of what we see here in Acts 20 as we move through to the end of this chapter. And so I'm going to pick up reading in verse 28, and we'll read through 38 <clears throat> to the conclusion of chapter 20, all right? This is God's word. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, in which the Holy Spirit... "...has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears." And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied accompanied him to the ship. This concludes the reading of God's Word. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we come to this passage, I'll just give you a quick outline of where we're going, and then we'll dive right in. I'm going to break this down into four sections for us. Verses 28 through 31, I'm calling this care and guard. Care and guard. I'll explain that a little bit more in a moment. And then as we move forward, in verse 32, I want to look at it on its own. Commending in faith, 33 through 35, mutual care and hard work, and then 36 through 38, an emotional farewell. So as we said, Paul is here instructing the elders in Ephesus. He's right, we're dropping right into the middle of his instructions to them, his farewell words to these leaders in the church, elders or pastors in the church, in this local church in Ephesus that he is speaking to. And right here, he really begins to get to some of the very practical things of their ministry, the work of their ministry that they are to do. And so in verses 28 through 31, we really see two calls to them, to care for and to guard. And so if you think about Psalm 23 and the shepherd imagery that is used even of pastors, we're thinking about the rod and the staff. The staff is used to care for, to guide, to lead along and to help them when they are entangled in something, to help get them out of trouble. And the rod would be used to protect them from wolves that even Paul will mention here in the same metaphorical language. And so we see this call for them to care and to guard. And so we'll speak specifically, as the passage does, to elders in the church, but there is much here for all of us to glean from. Once, For one, you need to know what God's Word says you should look for in elders in your church, and two, you will see that just as we look in First Timothy and over in Titus, uh, and we look at the qualifications for an elder outside of the qualification to teach, there is nothing that is there for an elder that, is not, that every Christian is not called to do. And so if you, I think about the words of D.A. Carson, he says, what's remarkable about the qualifications for an elder is that there's really nothing remarkable about them. It's just godly character is what they're called to. And then they're called specifically to be exemplar in godly character and to teach and instruct the church in those things. And so <clears throat> there is much here that we all can glean from the text. And so first, let's look at the tone. Look at verse 28, the very first. Pay careful attention. And if you look down at verse 31, therefore, be alert. Pay careful attention, therefore, be alert, right? And so, think about this. This really sets the tone of the whole pa- uh, passage. Think about a time, or when a time when your attention is heightened, when you are, uh, when you are really in tune to what's going on around you, and you're aware. Probably, uh, if you're a new parent, right, when you take that baby home with you for the first time. Right? You are really aware of everything that's going on. You probably check over and over. Are they still breathing? Are they still breathing? Are they still breathing? Right. All of these things, you're paying careful attention. You're vigilant to that. I can remember when I was in college, I worked at a clothing store at the mall not too far from here. And I was opening the store one, um, one, one morning during the Christmas season. And the manager was getting all the money counted from the day before. And he hands me the deposit bag. What do you you want me to do with this? And he says, I want you to walk it across the parking lot. The bank was at the edge of the parking lot and just drop it in the night deposit. So there's $17,000 in there. I was 19 years old, and that's a lot of money, $17,000. I'll take it now if you got it, actually. It's still a lot of money. $17,000. I mean, up until that point, my weekly allowance was only $15,000. So I had no idea... (laughs) what it was like to have $17,000 in my hand. And so uh, was I, did I walk across that parking lot in a different way than every other day that I'd walked across that parking lot? You better believe it. Absolutely. I was, I was vigilant about what's going on. I was very careful about what I was doing and went straight there and did the task that I was uh, asked to do and went straight back so that they would know that I actually didn't run off with the money, right? And so, Pay careful attention. This is the kind of tone, but friends, this is infinitely more important because as we'll see as the passage moves forward, what's at stake here and the value of what we're talking about is far more than any kind of worldly money or monetary value that we could put on it. And so here, what we see that the Apostle Paul calls the elders to is to pay careful attention. Now notice what he says next. To yourselves. First. Brother Elders, first he says, pay careful attention to yourselves. Why? Because he's going to tell us in the passage that you're overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And that, that is authority that God has given to people to exercise within the church that is to be reflective of our Heavenly Father's authority. And he says, you are an overseer. So first and foremost, you must pay careful attention to yourself. This reminds us of Paul's words to Timothy. That there in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine, as one translation puts it. Persist in this, for in so doing you will save both yourselves and your hearers. And so first and foremost, the Apostle Paul says that, that elders must first pay careful attention to themselves. They must first pay careful attention to themselves to make sure that they are not deviating in this way, that they're to be exemplar in their character, that they're not deviating from teaching all that Christ has commanded them to teach, that they're being faithful to the task that the Lord God has called them to and that he has commissioned them to. And that they are to exercise this authority. But before they're to exercise this authority, they must first pay careful attention to themselves. Then notice where he goes. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The flock in which they are to exercise this authority. Of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. First, let's think about the term overseers. And then we'll talk about the flock. Right. And so he says that they have this authority, that this authority of oversight is, is, really has this picture of, of management or stewardship, if you will. And so to steward something is to uh, take care of something that is not yours. It's what I was doing when I was carrying that deposit across the parking lot. That is not my money, but I was to steward that, and I was to do one thing, take it straight to the deposit box, drop it in the deposit box, right? And so it's not mine, but I, have, I was to oversee it, I was to manage it, I was to steward that and to do Do what was intended by its rightful owner. So so it is in the life of the church that the overseers, the elders, the pastors are to steward the whole flock. So what do we see them called to? First, let's look at Hebrews 13, 17. You can write that down in our anti-authoritarian society. We don't like passages like this, but look at what it says. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account. Any elder should tell you that's the most sobering words they can hear. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So not only has the Lord called them and entrusted something to elders, but he's told them that you're to do this for him because this is his church and that he will call you to an account on it. He will hold you accountable to this task that he has called you to. We know from passages like James 3.1 that not everyone should be teachers because they will be held to a stricter standard, which, by the way, I think anytime we talk about that in our own culture, that everybody should just be reminded that we live in a culture where there is much self-publication and there is much self-platforming where we can all make ourselves teachers to some extent. So just be careful when you stand lest you fall. And just know that even when you publish yourself on social media, you are instructing others to some extent. And there will be a standard to which the Lord will hold you in on that if you're faithful to his word or not. And so here... For elders, we see that they are called to this and that the Lord will hold them account. And so they are to keep watch over the souls of the people in which are entrusted to their care. Keeping watch over the souls, what are we doing? Well, Paul tells us that we're caring and that we're guarding. To care for others is to nourish them in the gospel. It's a teaching ministry of the church. Remember the one qualification that we said that's not there for all Christians, that is there specifically for elders, is that they would teach, that they would instruct. That's not just publicly from the platform like I'm doing right now, but that would be teaching in any way teaching and instructing in one-on-one counseling, teaching and instructing in a small group, teaching and instructing in discipleship, teaching and instructing when someone asks a question through email, on the phone, in a meeting. There is constant teaching and instructing that we are to point the church to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to nourish those in the church on the gospel. They would hear the word and be instructed by God's word because his word is what gives us life. And so they are to care by nourishing. They are to care by assisting you in your discipleship. They are to care by praying for your growth. We see this in Acts chapter 6 earlier in the book, right? When the prototype deacons are put in place, what is it for? So that there can be a devotion to teaching and to prayer, So there can be a devotion to teaching and prayer within the church. We would understand that this is to be the main and uh, primary task of the elders, to pray and to instruct. And brothers and sisters, it's not just to pray for you when something difficult is going on, but it's to pray for your spiritual growth, even in the midst of the difficulty that's going on in your life, and in the midst of the adversity that's going on, that you would continue to endure as James 1 calls you to, and that you would continue to walk in faithfulness to the Lord as you are going about in your Christian life and that your marriages would be healthy and centered on the gospel that your parenting would be centered on the gospel that your relationships in the community and in your work would be healthy and that you would be a great witness for Christ in the community these are the kinds of things that elders are to do they're in short to seek to help you follow Jesus they're to seek to help you follow Christ and they're care for you. Look at what's next. They're to guard you. We see this as the passage moves on. and We'll come back up to 28 in just a moment. But he says, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. This is, this is serious language. The fierce wolves. I've never seen one and don't ever care to see one. Right? In real life. But fierce wolves, the language that Paul's using, is those who would come in and he would teach doctrine and things that are contrary to Scripture. And he says they will not spare the flock. I mean, a wolf among sheep is bad news. And then he says, and even from among your own selves. That means it could be twofold there, right? From within the church and from within even elders themselves at times deviate and, and end up teaching contrary to Scripture. And this is why the, the elders must what, pay careful attention to themselves. Or as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, watch their life and their doctrine and to the whole church, the whole flock. But they must be vigilant. And so they are to guard as well. Not just to care, but to guard. They're to be on the lookout. They're to look out for things that are dangerous. Paul says they're speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. They're to look for things like legalism that could be creeping in. Legalism would be creating extra-biblical standards. This is going beyond all that Christ taught us to obey, all of his commands, and adding things. They could be looking for things like moralism. And I can say, I speak here specifically of what has been called moralistic therapeutic deism. Just this, this subtle danger that, well, what God really wants for my life, pastor, is that I just be good, and he's somewhat distant, Uh, But as long as I'm good, then I'll be happy. Moralistic, good, therapeutic, he just wants to be happy. Deism, God's at a distance. This is prevalent in our culture today. And elders must look out for that in conversations and teach against that publicly and seek to correct. Why? Because anything contrary to God's word has eternal ramifications. There is only one way by which men may be saved, and that is through Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And any perversion of the gospel is going to lead you to condemnation. You have to be on the lookout for antinomianism. Antinomianism means literally no law. It means that grace abounds so sin can just remain and increase, right? It's leaving out Romans chapter 6. Let therefore not sin what reign in your mortal bodies. So they must be on the lookout for these types of things that creep in and begin to pervert and distort the gospel. Not to mention the the sometimes subtle sins of gossip, bitterness, greed, resentment, pride, apathy, cynicism, on and on and on we could go. Brothers and sisters, these are the things that you don't want to hear your elder point out in your life. In your own flesh, in my flesh, we don't like to be corrected, friend. None of you wants a doctor who will sit at you and know, sit and look at you, knowing that you have something, an ailment that is going to lead to uh, catastrophic results in your life, and tell you everything's okay. You would find a new doctor. Well, elders are called to be soul care physicians. And they're to be on the lookout for these things. And if you're going to a church where they're turning a blind eye to perversions of the gospel, you should find a new church. And when your pastors love you enough to look at you and say, hey, we're concerned about this in your life, and they speak it in gentleness and in love, but they speak the truth to you, you should say, thank you. There should be some pause there and you should prayerfully consider what they're saying. Why? Because they loved you enough not to fear you and make you big and God small, but they said, you know what? I love this person so much and God is big and he's the one that's going to hold me accountable and maybe they're going to be upset with me right now, but I must speak the truth in love because it's what God has called me to do and he's going to hold me accountable to it. The elders are to care for and guard the church. Spurgeon's Prize, I'm quoting Spurgeon. Spurgeon's lecture to my students, lecture number one. Lecture number one still helps us today, even though we all have these things called phones that set their time on their own automatically. He says, one man walking around London, if his clock's a little bit off from London Tower, no big deal, right? It'll mess up his day. He said, but if London Tower is off, the clock by which every other clock sets their clock, then the whole city is off. So it is with elders. If they are not in line with God's word, and they are not helping everyone else keep in step with the rhythm of God's word, then the results are catastrophic because everyone is deviating together. Elders, keep close, watch. Pay careful attention on yourselves and all the flock. Now, what does that mean? Who do elder pastors have authority over? Who are they accountable for? Any elder, any pastor in this community? Do you have to submit to them? Do you have to listen to them? The answer is no. Am I responsible for everyone that professes to be a Christian in this community? The answer is no. Who who are we accountable for? Peter says in very similar language in 1 Peter 5, shepherd the flock that is among you. Shepherd the flock that is among you. The people who are there in the flock. The people who are there among the flock. And so so every Christian is not accountable to every professed pastor. You have to submit yourself under a pastor. You have to submit yourself to a local church. And you do this through membership. And again, in our anti-authoritarian society, we don't like this kind of language, but let's just think about a few things briefly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls the church at Corinth to put out the one who is an unrepentant sin. Friends, you cannot put someone out if there's not an end. There has to be an end for someone to be put out. And in 2 Corinthians later, he says, bring back the brother. Maybe referring to the same one we hope that the gospel of grace came to bear. And so bring them back into membership the local church is incredibly important. Think about the New Testament for just a moment and think about the books of the New Testament. Ephesians, right? Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, right? We can go on and on Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonica, on and on. I'll come back to the pastorals. All of those letters are written to local churches or to local churches in a region, a group of local churches like Galatians, right? And so over and over, Revelation begins with seven letters to the seven churches. What about First and Second Timothy and Titus? It's written to leaders of local churches. And so over and over and over again, the New Testament is showing us the importance of the local church. And we can see over and over and over again first, uh, from 1 Corinthians that there were those who were in the church and that there was a time when, they were, when their life was out of step with the gospel that they needed to be removed from the church for their sake, for the sake of bringing them back into line with the gospel. And so, brothers and sisters, if there's an end, if there's this emphasis over and over on the local church, then I think it's important that you and I are a part of a local church. We are submitting and saying, hey, I want to come under the care of this church, just like you would a medical doctor. And so here, who are the flock? The flock are those who are a part of the local church and who have said, I want this church to care for me and help keep watch over my soul. And so, who's the flock? The flock is the church. Brothers and sisters, we need the church. Even elders need the church. Pay careful attention to yourselves, it says. We need each other. We need the church. I'll quote Ed Welch, who I've already quoted in an indirect way by talking about when people are big and God is small. Let me quote him again. He says, we're all needy and needed as Christians, we're all needy and needed. What that means is, I need you, and you need me, or we need one another. That, that, that no one in here says, hey, I've got it all figured out, and I'm needed, but I'm not needy, needy. We all are needy. We all need others in our lives to help us in faithfulness to Christ, to help us walk in faithfulness in Christ. And others in this room need you. And so we can fall into either error. You can just be needy and never seek to serve others. You're wrong. You can just only seek to serve others but never open up and be vulnerable and admit that you're needy. You're wrong. We need one another. We are needy and needed. Think about Hebrews again, as we uh, quoted from Hebrews 13. Let me just give you two things that I know that I say often when I preach, but I don't apologize. It's God's word. If I was telling the same joke every time, that'd be different. But this is God's word. So we can say it over and over just as we read from Philippians 3. It's no trouble to say it again, right? It's a benefit to us to hear it over and over and over. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, listen. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together we got to be together, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I want to point out two things in that passage. This is positively how we need one another in the church. Let us gather together. Let us encourage one another. That's everybody in this room, encouraging one another, spurring one another on to love and good works, and that we need that. Now, here's something that I want you to notice. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And day in the ESV is capitalized, rightfully so, because it has an eschatological overtone, which is a fancy word that means end time. Last things. And here's what it means. We need each other, and each other is God's means for getting us all the way to the finish line. You, I mean, that's huge. All the more as you see the day, as you see the day drawing near. God's plan for getting you all the way home and getting you all the way across the finish line is that you and I helping each other get there. That means... Getting up under somebody's arm every once in a while and helping them across with a limp. That means, hey, patting them on the backside, chin up. It's time to be encouraged because we win in the end. Whatever it takes that we would encourage each other and that we would get there all the way together. Now, let me show it to you on the negative side. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. What I mean by negative is I mean a corrective side. That's a positive, encouraging. Now think about it from the corrective side. Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart. That's serious. An evil and unbelieving heart. Back to the quote. Scripture, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we indeed hold to our original confidence firm to the end. This is weighty. Take care. Same language. Take care. Careful. Lest there be an unbelieving and evil heart in you, causing you to fall away from the living God. Listen, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Now, I know that's a lot there, but that's all the time. Every day as long as it's called today. Uh, what day is Sunday? Oh, that's today. Oh, tomorrow. What day is Monday? Oh, that's today. Every day is called today, right? And so as long as it's called today, do it every day. So all the time, notice that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That sin deceives us, even our own selves. That's why we need each other. And what does he say? He says, he says warn one another every day. And then notice what he says. He ties it to last things once again. For we've come to share in Christ if we hold firm to the original confidence to the end. God's plan for getting you all the way home is the people in this room encouraging you along the way. Come on, come on, we can do it. We can do it. Don't grow weary of doing good. Come on, be stirred up to loving good works. It's the people in this room who are saying, look out, look out. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. That's greed. That's cynicism taking root in your heart. Look out for that sin. Look out for that landmine. That is God's plan for getting us all the way through. Brothers and sisters, when you refuse that, you're saying that you know better than God. And the first people who did that were Adam and Eve, and it did not go well. And we've all been doing it and following suit every time, all along the way. And so for us to say, I don't need the church, is for us to say, I'm wiser than you, Lord. I've got this figured out. Now, let's go back to the value of it. Look at the end of verse 28. Which he obtained with his own blood. Why does the Lord care so much? I told you there's no monetary value that could be put on the things that we're talking about this morning. The church is of infinite value to the Lord because he gave his one and only son to secure it. That it took The death of his son to secure his people for his glory. The church is precious and the church is the Lord's. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's the Lord's church. The hymn writer said it eloquently. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Christ came to seek and to save and to make for himself a people. The church belongs to God, and the church is the people of God. See, God created this world and everything that is in it. And that means that people, because we're a part of the world that he created, right? We're all intended to be his people. Yet, with our first parents, we joined the rebellion and we decided that we knew better than God. And we decided that we could be our own gods. And so we rebelled against him. And because of our rebellion, we are separated from God and we are under his righteous judgment. Friend, if God created you and made you, then he lays claim on you. You must answer to him. You can refuse, kick against it all you want, ignore it, anesthetize yourself. Whatever, whatever you're doing right now, you can try those things. But in the end, it will come up short. Because all of us is going to die one day. And when we do, the Bible is very clear. We will stand before God and we will give an account for our lives. It is appointed once for a person to die. And after that, judgment And so if God has created us and we've rebelled against him and his intent was for us to be his people, the bad news is is that we are under his righteous wrath and judgment. But there is good news. Because God sent his son who lived the perfect life, a righteous life that earned God's favor, yet he died a sinner's death and he secures for God by his blood a people. And this is what Paul is referring to here in this passage, that God is redeeming for himself a people again. And so this morning the question is, what about you? Do you see a need in your life for a Savior? Because you can be a part of God's people. You can be a part of this people that that he purchased with the blood of his own son that he places infinite value on, that, that he says that he will show his manifest wisdom to the entire cosmos through his church, Ephesians chapter 3. And you can be a part of that, and you can know God as you were intended and created to, and your sins can be forgiven, and you can be made new, as the hymn said, and as God's word says, a part of his new creation. And this morning, the call is for you To repent, turn from trying to be your own God because it's only going to lead you to shame, pain, and ultimately death and judgment. Let go of that, walk away from that. Look to Christ and throw yourself at His feet on His mercy and grace and be saved. Brothers and sisters, elders, we need to be reminded of the church and of the value of the church and that God loves the church so much so that it costs the precious life of His Son. How often do we bemoan the church? Elders, how often do we say pastoring would be easy if it wasn't for people? Sometimes we just want to fleece some sheep, eat some lamb chops, right? (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. Uh, what What about you, church member? How often are you tempted to talk bad about the church? To gripe and grumble and complain about someone sitting right next to you right now? In front of you, you can't see the screen because their head's so big and they're getting on your nerves, and you know, whatever it is, I don't know. Right? Brothers and sisters, we should love the church and cherish the church because God loves and cherishes the church. Several years ago, this is back when they still had Lifeway bookstores, you know, there was one over at the mall. And I was in there, and I was looking for some, I'm sure, obscure theology book and having no luck finding it. And, and, but I, as, I was in there, as I was in there, I could hear two elderly ladies, and they were fighting with each other. And I was like, oh, this will be good, so let me listen to what's going on here. And so as they were arguing with one another in the, in the aisle behind me, but as I continued to listen, I recognized what they were arguing about. And they were buying children's curriculum for their church, And one said, I'm going to pay this time. Another one said, no, you paid last time. I'm going to pay this time. And she said, no, I'm paying this time. And I I can't hardly tell without getting emotional. I don't know that my generation is producing people who love the church like that. And I was convicted and encouraged. And I thought, thank God for the saints who went before us. And who sacrificed so much so that you and I would know the gospel, would hear the gospel, would love and cherish the gospel. And shame on us if we're not fighting about serving and loving the church and instead fighting and grumbling and complaining about the church that God sent his son to buy. Look at verse 32. Commending in faith. The Apostle Paul is there and he he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Brothers and sisters, we will know times of seasonal labor in our Christian walk. Parenting, we understand this, right? We understand this in parenting. If you're like me and you're, and you're entering in those, those years where your kids are hitting the teenage years and you feel that anxiety that, that you've heard about all your life, I've only got a few more years with them. I've only got a few more years with them. And, and they're gone. And I know sometimes we're thinking, oh, boy, I don't know if I can make it a few more years. But no, we're, we're thinking just a few more years and, 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 and this is going to change. I'm not going to have this time with them like this anymore. Brothers and sisters, so it is often in the church. We have seasons. We will send people out. Dan mentioned the Sanders. I I can't believe that it's been eight years, June, that we sent them out to Boston. Every time I talk to him, I'm like, y'all ready to come home yet? Y'all ready to come home yet? Right? Right? We Send people out, send them away there, there, there's times that, that we will that we will have a season that will that will build close relationships and someone will have to move. work will take them away. other things in life will take them away they 're in our base group with us they're they 're in a Bible study with us they 're people who invest in us, people who we 've had the chance to invest in and there 's going to be these seasons where we 're going to have to to send them away and it can It can not only just be the big things it can be short term mission trips where we have the opportunity to go and serve. For a week, ten days, two weeks, maybe a month. But then there's a time we have to leave. There's a time of we preach a sermon and then, and then we're done. There's a time we have a Bible study and it's done. There's a time when you're downstairs and you teach those kids for 45 minutes. or Are you sure tried to? And, and they were throwing goldfish everywhere and things were going crazy. But in the end of that, you just have to entrust it to the Lord. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. He's saying, I have labored with tears. And it's time in this moment just to commend it to the Lord. Why? Because it's not you and I who are making the difference. It's not you and I who are changing lives and changing hearts. It's God through the ministry of His Word and the Holy Spirit who is accomplishing His work. And we have to trust it to God in the Word of His grace which is able to build you up and bring you all the way home to give you that inheritance. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. When seasons come to an end, and sometimes they end sooner than we want, we just have to trust the Lord and entrust it to Him. Verses 33 through 35, let's look at the mutual care and the hard work. The Apostle Paul here is, is speaking about his labor, right? He said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these, things, these hands have ministered to my necessities and those who are with me. Paul's worked hard. He says, in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus it's more blessed to give than receive. Apostle Paul here is speaking specifically that, that he labored, right, to, to meet his own needs. He's there in frontier missionary efforts, and he doesn't want to be a burden to those that he's taking the gospel with. So he's willing to work hard and to provide for his own needs so that he doesn't have to take from them. We know at times that he did. When they offered, the church at Philippi gave him things. He says that there in the end of his letter. We know here as he's speaking and over in Corinthians that he didn't as well, that he labored. A couple of things I want to say about this. One, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay pastors. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't pay pastors. Over in 1 Corinthians 9, as the Apostle Paul builds this argument for why he didn't take payment from them, why he denied him something that denied a right that was his for the sake of the gospels, what he's saying there in 1 Corinthians 9. But he builds really this whole biblical theology of why we should pay pastors. And and this is kind of where it ends. You can go read 1 Corinthians 9, the whole chapter, but I'm gonna quote to you verse 14 because he's been building this whole biblical theology from the Old Testament. Uh, all the way up to why we should pay pastors. And he says this, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, I'm not a paid pastor, so I, I feel more liberty to say more here than maybe I would if I, if I was being paid right now as a pastor. But here's what we need to know, that it is important for us to take care of our pastors. Paul says in 1 first, first, uh, Timothy as well, that Those who labor are worthy of double honor. He says, we are, uh, we are right, is what, that's word what it affirms, to pay our pastors so they can devote full-time labor to the ministry and that we should do for others what Paul was doing for himself. We should labor to make sure that those who are on the frontier, on the front, seeking to reach the unreached people groups with the gospel, that they are funded so that they can focus on that work and that they aren't seeking to take from those that they're ministering to. Brothers and sisters, we are in a unique time and a unique place in church history where we have the ability to fund missions, efforts, and to fund ministry so that there can be full devotion to the gospel. Now let me make a couple other things that I think are important to note. Number one, if you're here today and you're considering ministry, ministry is hard work. It's hard work. The Apostle Paul says, says it here. He says, I worked hard. If you're looking for ease and comfort or an excuse to be lazy, please find something else to do because we don't need you. Paul said in Colossians 1 For this I toil and work, seeking to present everyone mature in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Yet, but it was the grace of God in me. Brothers, sisters, Brothers especially, ministry is hard work and you need to be ready to pour yourself into it. Why? Because you know the value of what you are working with and toward and for. It's for God's glory and it's for the sake and the good of his church that he purchased with his own blood. Let's look at verse... 36 through 38. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and kissed him. And being sorrowful, most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Brothers and sisters, we see here just a culmination of this emotional farewell say, no, not in this life. They will not see each other again. Just as we said earlier, there's those times when we have to just commend it to the Lord. Sometimes it may mean that we may not see someone again. It may mean that we see them next week. It may mean that we don't see them for several years. But gospel work is always bittersweet. There's glory and joy in knowing that someone else is going to labor in the gospel There's a sweetness in that, but there's a bitterness in saying goodbye and saying see you later. Brothers and sisters, we're going to experience this as a church right now. We already are. Even though we'll be nearby and still neighbors, we're going to see people go out from this place in a couple of weeks to start a new work in a neighboring community. And we know with that, even though we can still see each other and, and still get together and still partner together, praise the Lord and for His glory, But relationships and things are going to change in light of that. And so there's a sweetness in it and that, that gospel advance is happening, but there's also bitterness in it and that, that we won't get to enjoy things the way that we have in one another's company and ministry partnership to the same degree that we will be in the future. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I think... We just need to understand that we're in good company with that. As we see here in this passage, and as gospel work happens, this will happen, but know this. We will dine together on that last day in the fullness of joy in the presence of our Lord. And there won't be one person missing from the table as we all celebrate together as a family and give glory to the King of kings and Lord of lords throughout all ages. Father, we thank you for your word. Let it, let it go out and accomplish its will and its work in us and our lives. Father, where we've been convicted this morning, we pray that the word would not be snuffed out, plucked out, extinguished in any way, but the spirit would even turn up the intensity in our hearts, that we would repent, that we'd be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, we be ministered to. Father, that as a result